Last week, last week we began our uh, marathon study of Psalm 139, two weeks long. <laughs> We're going to finish today. Last week, um, I also told you that Pastor John is recovering. Uh, in the first two services last night and this morning, I mentioned that we thought he'd, he'd be back next week, and we're not so sure. <laughs> so uh, we just have to pray, see how he's doing. Um, you know, just keep him in your prayers. He's doing well. He's uh, getting through the, you know, the rehab of take, having a knee replaced. If you're visiting, our senior pastor had his knee replaced. So he's recovering, and that takes a little while. Uh, we're gonna, we are going to hook up a chair. We have the Army Corps of Engineers working on a chair plan for him. Um, his, his plan is to come and sit down and preach for a few weeks when he comes back, and he wants to use his chair from upstairs, his office chair. It has wheels. Can you picture the YouTube video <laughs> as the holy roller comes down the, the steps? So anyway, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll work that out. Um, Sort of the sad but yet glorious news you probably heard this week that Pastor Chuck Smith went home to be with the Lord. What a man of God. Um, I've listened to him. I've read his commentaries, read his books. I never had the privilege of meeting him. Pastor John know, knew him well. And, and Pastor John said, you know, there'll never be anyone like him. And he was such a standard for the Christian community in the world. Stand up, standing for Christ. Yeah, amen, exactly. So let's remember his family in prayer because, you know, they're, they're grieving his church family. I mean, so many, but yet... He's with the Lord that he served his whole life. Last week, we started Psalm 139. We covered the first six verses to, to, to answer the question, who is God? And if you remember, we saw that God knows us with perfect knowledge. He knows each one of us so well. He knows everything we do, everything we think. To God, he focuses on you as if you were the only person in the entire universe how personal you are to God. Tonight, or today, we're going to look at the rest of the psalm and answer the question, where is God? I would like to open us in prayer, and then Joe Kovelson is going to come read Psalm 139 to us. So let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you uh, for your love. We thank you for your son. We thank you, Lord, that we can come to you as your people that you know so well. You know all of our strengths and all of our weaknesses, yet you love us. You want us to come to you. You accept us and you forgive us when we come to you in Christ. Lord, we, we don't want to come and open your word and then just share opinions of, of, that we think. Lord, we want your spirit to speak. So, Father, we ask that you would fill this place. You would speak to each heart here. Open our hearts, our eyes, our minds to who you are and where you are so we could see more closely than ever before how we can follow you. We ask this in the name that is above every name, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Joe? Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down, and you are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there was a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you knew it all. You've enclosed me from behind and before, and you laid your hand upon me. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's too high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. You form me in my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows them very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depth of the earth, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious are you in your thoughts to me, O God? How vast is the sum of them? If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God, that depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in the vain, in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred, and they have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. Psalm 139. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. You saw Joe kind of pause when he got to the last two verses, that prayer. We'll, we'll get to that. That's, that is something to pause over. Okay, so last week we um, looked at the first six verses. It said, who is God? We saw that he has perfect knowledge, all knowledge. And there's a word for that. It's, um, he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. Today, the, when we study the rest of Psalm 139, we're going to ask the question, where is God? Now, if you think about it, that presents a bit of a problem for us. We can't see God. He is invisible to us. So how can we say where he is? How can we find him? Well, very kindly, God has told us where he is in our, in our Bibles and what Joe just read. Every, every page, God describes himself, and he can, helps us find where he is. And we saw last week that those who wrote the Old and New Testament were men where God gave them personal directions to what to write so that we can have confidence to know that they wrote exactly what God asked them to write. So we're hearing God's thoughts, not the thoughts of men. Now, if you have a smartphone... You probably have an app that comes with it. You have a little map on your phone, so you always know where you are. You probably, if you look at your map, there's probably a little, mine's blue, maybe, I don't know, color. you have a little pulsing blue dot that tells you where you are at all times. And that really comes in handy if you're lost or you're driving somewhere and you're not familiar. Oh, I see where I'm, okay, I see, I, I see where I need to go. Let me ask you this. If God had a smartphone, where would his location dot be? Would it be in heaven? Would it be on earth? Would it be under the earth? Would it be here with us? The answer is all of the above and more. 
just as God knows all things, he also occupies all places. He's everywhere. There's a word for that, which is omnipresent. He is everywhere present. God exists everywhere at the same time. Is that hard for you to believe? I see some heads doing no, some heads going, yeah. Well, it is hard for us because, you know, we who are finite can't comprehend a God who is infinite in his knowledge and in his presence. And we who are limited by these physical bodies can't imagine a God who is unlimited in his thoughts and in his presence. So let's turn to Psalm 139 and see where God says that he is, starting with verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? This is a rhetorical question. David is asking a question to make a statement. And the question is, where can I hide from God? And the statement this makes is nowhere. We can't hide anywhere from God. We are in the constant presence of God wherever we go. Now this uh, sentence, this question could also be phrased this way. Why would I want to flee from God? Why would I want to get away from him? Think about that for a minute. Why would I want to get away from God? We might be able to find the answer in some of those old classic westerns, you know, where the one cowpoke says to the other, this town ain't big enough for the two of us. There's only one throne of our life. There's only room, one, one gets to sit there. Either I sit there or God does. If I want to rule my life, then I want to distance myself from my competitor in heaven. I want to try to get away from God if I can. <laughs> but if I want to sit on that, or if I want God to sit on that throne, if I want to keep God in charge, then I want to be as close to him as I possibly can. Let's read on. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Wow, what is all this about? Heaven, Sheol, dawn, the sea. Wow, what a road trip. What's that all about? David is using this poetic language to show us that God is absolutely everywhere. He cannot be contained or restrained in any way. God can sit on his throne in heaven, dwell in the depths of the earth, be in the remotest part of the sea, and right here with us, and everywhere in between, all at the same time. God never needs transportation. Why? Because he never goes anywhere? No, because he already is everywhere. God occupies all places and all spaces at all times. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was never born and he will never die. God has always been and he always will be. So the good news for us, when he promises us eternal life in his son, he's the only one who can back that up. But what about places in the Bible where it says God is near to us or God is, God is far from us? How can God be near or far if he's actually everywhere all the time? Are these verses in conflict with Psalm 139? Well, of course not. When the Bible talks about God being near or far, they're not describing God's physical location. They're describing our spiritual condition. If we live in obedience with God, our heart is aligned with his, and we are closer to him, spiritually speaking. When we live in disobedience, our heart is hardened, and we move away from him, spiritually speaking. If you look at verse 8, there's a surprise there maybe for some of you. 
If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. Now, it's not surprising to find God in heaven, isn't it? I mean, that's his home address. He's our Father in heaven. But David said, well, if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the land of the dead. It means the grave. It means hell. It means Hades. God is everywhere, including the grave, including hell. Does that surprise you that God is in hell? Surprise David. Look what he wrote. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. Behold is an expression of astonishment. David is saying, if I go to heaven, Lord, you're there. But if I, make my, if I lay down and make my bed in hell, oh my gosh, you're there too. When God says he's everywhere, he's everywhere. Even death cannot hide us from God. God's presence, though, means something quite different in heaven than it does in hell. God's presence in heaven means, oh, unimaginable rewards for those who have put their faith in his son. God's presence in hell means eternal punishment. Look at verse 9 again. If I take the wings of the dawn, let me ask you this. How fast can you go if you take the wings of the dawn? How fast can you go if you're flying with the dawn? Well, light travels at 671 million miles per hour. So if you're traveling with light, you're going really fast. But even at warp speed, even at light speed, you're not going to outrun God. If I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, what if we found an island that was so far away, so tiny, so tucked away in some place of the earth that even Google couldn't map it? Even God's there. Here's what this passage is teaching. At least this is what I thought of as I was studying it. Have you ever played hide and seek with a little one that's maybe three or four years old? You, you close your eyes and you count to 10, right? You count to 10 and the person goes, the little one goes and hides like this. And they hide over here. You know, they don't hide very well, do they? <laughs> they just kind of, and you, you say 10, you open your eyes, you know exactly where they are because they're in plain sight, but then you have to pretend and go looking around the house for them anyway, right? Same is true for us. We may think we're hiding from God. Oh, God's not going to find me over here. He can't see me over here. We are always in plain sight to our Father in heaven. And look at verse 10 again. Even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. Everywhere we go, God's hand is there. His hand will protect us, comfort us, guide us, nurture us, and sustain us when we're obedient to him. And it's a hand of discipline when we're disobedient. Think back when you were little and you were behaving yourself, you know, and your mom or dad placed their hand on you. Didn't it feel nice and warm and reassuring? But if you were not being a good boy or girl and they placed that hand on you, remember how that hand felt? Yeah, it was heavy, wasn't it? <clears throat> oh, right? Or maybe it was a little painful. So it is with the hand of God. God's right hand speaks of his sovereignty. What does that mean? It means that God is absolutely in control of everything. He is in charge. He is in complete control. He is sovereign. I know sometimes life gets confusing and ugly. And it's really hard to imagine how God could be in charge of this mess. We have to remember that when God created the world and the human race, he created paradise. And he put two people in it. And all the human race, two people, had to do is just, just don't eat the fruit of that tree. That's it. And you can live in paradise forever. Two people, one rule, broke the rule. God gave Adam and Eve 
the freedom to choose to obey him or not. We have the same choice. And this chaos that we see around us today is the result of our choice to continually sin against our God. We don't have time today to, to go into the doctrine of sin and its effect on the world, but we should just note this and then we'll move on. God is in charge. He is sovereign. His will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God is also so patient. He is giving everyone every opportunity to come to him. Because one day, God's patience will run out. And then God's right hand will balance the books. And he'll wipe all of this away and restore paradise forever. If you've asked Jesus to be your savior, you have paradise in your future. You have the best retirement plan anybody could ever have. In the meantime, though, God's right hand is here. We can trust it to get us through. We can trust it to follow him. Someone once described the sovereignty of God to me like this. It's a good, it's a good word picture. Imagine that your life is a tapestry. God is making a tapestry of your life. He's knitting it by hand. And all you can see on your side while you're on earth is the backside of the tapestry. All you see are the dangling threads and the knots and they're going every which way, but you can't see any real picture. It's confusing. You can't really make any sense of it. It seems like a jumbled mess to you. But one day when you're in heaven, you will stand before your God and he's going to turn that canvas around and show you the, the picture he made. And that tapestry will be perfect and you will see a perfect picture of your life where every stitch went right in the right place because God knew exactly how to move you and get you where you needed to be. When we stand before our perfect God, our life will make perfect sense. When you and I trust God's right hand, we're not being spiritual, we're not being religious, we're being wise, we're being practical. Oh, verse 11 and 12, oh, that brings glorious news. Oh, if I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. In verse 11, the word overwhelm <clears throat> means to crush. David was a man that knew a lot about tragedy and suffering. He knew what it was like to be crushed by life. How many times have you cried out, surely this life is going to crush me. I can't make it. Life can be so hard sometimes. Sometimes you can feel like all the light just gets sucked out of your life and you're left in the dark. And in the dark, you can lose your way. You can feel like giving up. It feels dark and hopeless. Years ago, I went through a very dark time in my life. But I discovered something astonishing. It surprised me so much, I wrote it down. I don't journal. I'm not a journal person. But on this day, I wrote it down. And I'm going to read you what I wrote many years ago in a dark time. I wrote, in the darkness, I have found something I didn't expect, but it's something I've always wanted to know. And I don't think there's any way on earth I would have known it, discovered it any other way. In the deep blackness, there is light. Not a light you can see because it is not a light restricted to human perception. It's not a light that you feel because it is not limited to human emotion. It is not a light you can describe because it is not part of human understanding. It is simply there. The light is love and the light is God. 
I now know as never before how God loves me more deeply than I realize. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your love and light. Where is God? In our darkest hour, he brings the light. Now, verse 11 and 12 is one of those good news, bad news passages for us. The good news, God sees us in the dark. That's the good news. The bad news, God sees us in the dark. Whatever we do in the dark is broad daylight, as far as God is concerned. Uh, one time I was doing some video work for a major resort, and they happened to have this very popular nightclub as part of the property. And the hotel executive gave us a tour, and we went through the whole place, and he took us into the nightclub in the middle of the day so we could see it. Have you ever been inside a nightclub in, with the lights on <laughs> and light outside? Oh, my goodness. I can describe it in one word. Yuck. Um, wow. Uh, the food and beverage stains I saw on the furniture and the floor. And, uh, you know, it made me want to go back to my room and take a shower and wash my clothes. <laughs> it, it was nasty. But I figured, okay, that night, I bet when the music's cranking and the lights are off and the party lights are going, I bet you the place was packed. And, and I thought while well, I was there, oh, okay, I get it. It's a dumpster by day and it's a hot spot by night. That's what it is. Well, sin looks flashy in the dark. But if we could see sin, if we could see the thing that was enticing us, if we could see it in the light like God does, it wouldn't be appealing. It would be appalling. Now, God has no need of night vision goggles or a flashlight to find us when we're in the dark. He sees us perfectly. This reminds me of a story that circulated a few years ago. Maybe you saw it, but I'll read it to you in case you hadn't. This was a radio transcript between a U.S. naval ship and the Canadians uh, off the coast of Newfoundland, October 1995, one very dark night. The Americans transmitted over the radio and said, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. The Canadians responded over the radio and said, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The Americans answered back, this is the captain of the aircraft carrier USS Abraham Lincoln. I say again, divert your course. Canadians answered back, no, we say again, you divert your course. Americans answered back one time and said, change your course one five degrees north or countermeasures will be taken to protect the safety of this ship. And the Canadians answered, this is a lighthouse, your call. <laughs> Turns out the story isn't true but it does illustrate how darkness is a factor for us, but not for God. Loneliness also gets more intense in the dark, doesn't it? Don't you hate it when you wake up at 2.30, 3.30 in the morning? You just lay there, you can't go back to sleep. The house is so quiet, so dark, so lonely. The encouragement from this passage of Scripture is don't give in to despair. Don't think your way is hidden from the Lord. The God who is everywhere is with you, and only God can bring light into your darkest hour. Now we come to one of the most tender pictures of God in all the Bible, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. The word formed means created. Inward parts. What are our inward parts? This speaks about who we are. This is our essence, our spirit, our soul. 
God wove us like an artist. You and I are a work of art. Do you know that? When you look at yourself in the mirror, do you praise God's work or are you a little bit of an art critic? David praised God. He said, I will give thanks to you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. David wasn't being vain when he said, wonderful are your works. He was just marveling at God's handiwork. Do you know what it means to be fearfully made? Do you know what that word means? It means when God made you, he made you with honor and respect. God honored and respected you and I when he made us, when he formed us. It's sad that many people don't return their honor and respect to their creator. But you were made with honor and respect by Almighty God. Now scientists will tell us that the human race is here as a result of some natural events, some accidents, random chance. God does not share that opinion. We were made, the language is clear, we were wonderfully made, not evolved, not accidentally created. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. This statement of this psalm used to really bother me when I was younger and I kind of read past it a lot because it, it troubled me. I believed in God, I loved God, but I could not claim that I knew him very well. I knew him okay, but I couldn't say, oh yeah, I know God very well. I went to church, I went to Bible study, and I thought, you know, that's probably what a relationship with God is. You go to church, then you go to a Bible study, and okay, but I don't know him very well. I was measuring my relationship to God by my attendance at things, but not my experience with him. And it's really easy to fall into that trap, isn't it? Just go through the Christian motions. But God is personal and intimate. When God created Adam and Eve, he went for a walk with them every night in the cool of the evening. You and I were made to have that kind of companionship with our creator. God hasn't changed. He still wants to walk with us in the cool of the evening. When I decided I wanted to know God like that, everything changed for me. Going to church became exciting because I realized, you know, whoever the preacher is, doesn't matter. God's going to talk to me today. I'm going to learn something about God that I didn't know before. I'm going to get closer to the God that wants to get closer to me. During the week, I read my Bible with new, new eyes. Instead of these just being words on the page, I thought, oh my gosh, these are God's thoughts. These are the thoughts God has chosen to save to tell me. These are thoughts for me to know. I loved being with other believers that were on the same path I was on, and my prayer life totally changed. I went from timid and inconsistent prayers to I, I just prayed with confidence in God, not profit, pro, confidence in myself, just in Him, and I saw answers to prayer everywhere. So finally, and even today, it's wonderful to say, wonderful are His works, and my soul knows it so very well. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you and I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Our frame refers to our physical body. So in verse 13, God made our spirit. In verse 15, he makes our skin, our bones, our cells, everything. When David says, I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, this is a metaphor for the hiddenness of the womb. So where is God? Are you ready to hear this? You know where God is? He is as close to you as your soul is to your body, as your cells are to your body. He is that close to you. 
God is in all of us. But this does not automatically mean that we are all in him. God gives us the freedom to choose whether we want to be with him or not. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Anyone who wants to come to the Father can come through me. Or no one who who comes to the Father but through me. If we want to be with God, we have to come to him on his terms because he is God. And what are God's terms? They're simple. We just have to admit that we can't save ourselves and that we need a savior. And then we need to put our faith in Jesus who went to the cross and died to save us. Look at verse 16. Unbelievable. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. I I talked in the last service Doug Thompson usually sits over here, and he's, he teaches art and ceramics at El Dorado High School. And one time he, he, he was going to make some pottery, and he, he grabbed this clay, and he showed me this lump of unformed substance. And, he, and then he described to me while he's holding this gook exactly what kind of beautiful ceramic bowl he was going to make. And he did. And it was perfect. The artist knows exactly what he's going to make. God is the same way. God is an artist. When he saw our unformed substance, he knew exactly how we were going to turn out. So where is God? God saw us and knew us before we even existed. Before you and I were born, God also determined how long each one of us would live. And when God determined our lifespan, God knew all about war and disease, L.A. freeways, all of those things. I take great comfort in the fact that my life is not going to end by a random event, um, karma, bad juju, It's only going to be when God decides the time is up. God holds our next heartbeat in his hand. Verse 17 and 18, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they'd outnumber the sand. When I awake, I'm still with you. How precious! Precious doesn't mean cute. It means more valuable than priceless jewels. I had to stop here and think a lot. thought about it all week. What is the most precious thing in my life? Are God's thoughts more valuable to me than anything else in the world? How would you answer that question for yourself? What's the most important thing to you? God's thoughts or something else? By the way, what are God's thoughts? (laughs) Thoughts of forgiveness, mercy, kindness, grace, love, and thousands more of every kind. I can't think of anything more valuable than that. At the end of verse 18, it says, When I awake, I am still with you. David didn't write, When I wake, I return to you. He wrote, When I wake, I'm still with you. God is always with us. But again, we have the choice whether we always want to be with him or not. David proved to us, though, that we can always be with God. We can go to sleep thinking of him. We can awake the next morning thinking of him, being with him. My son-in-law, Brian, has, likes to wear a T-shirt, and on the front it says, easily distracted. Easily distracted. And I think that speaks pretty well of us. I think we have very short attention spans, maybe especially where God is concerned. But we can focus. David showed us we could focus. Is your mind on God just before you nod off to sleep? I don't mean right now in church. I mean when you go home, <laughs> bedtime. Is God your last thought? Is he your first thought when you wake up in the morning? 
I can't say that that's true of me every day. I wish it was. It's more so than it had ever been before, but it is one of the goals of my life. And I think someday, hopefully a long time from now, I will go to sleep and that'll be my last heartbeat. And if I go to sleep thinking of God, how wonderful to open my eyes, Jesus is there. And I can say, well, as I was saying, and just keep the conversation going forever. I think that'd be wonderful. How can we make God's thoughts priceless to us? By reading his word every day. These are God's thoughts. These, these, these come from God's heart, his soul, his spirit. How much of the Bible should you read every day? I think the answer is only as much as you can cherish. I've done this, but I'm not a big fan of it. I, I'm not a big fan of reading lots of scripture at one time. It's okay if you're going to do that because then you're going to go back and study it. But for me, again, these are God's thoughts. I don't want to blow through them like I'm scanning the sports page. I think it's best to only read what you can treasure. If that's one verse, great. Read that one verse and think about it all day. Think about it at night. Think about it when you wake up the next morning. It'll become precious to you. If you can read a chapter or a paragraph, fine. Just don't rush. You don't have to hurry. There's not a time limit. Give God time to speak to you because these are his thoughts and his thoughts will become your thoughts and they will become precious. Okay, verse 19 to 22 gets kind of heavy. Oh, that I would slay the wicked, O God, or that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed, for they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those that rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. When David wrote this psalm, it was around 1000 BC. He was king of Israel. He had real enemies around his country, men of bloodshed that hated him and hated his God. The word hate can mean loathe. It can also mean to reject. Both words are, are in the Hebrew lexicon for this. So David's either saying he truly does hate God's enemies or he rejects God's enemies. The question for us is how do we apply a passage like this to our lives? We're not kings. We don't rule our, this country. Christ is our king. Jesus told us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. So how do we, how do we make sense of this? Here's what I think the passage teaches. And I've written this in pencil, just like Pastor John does. It's not in ink, but this is what I think it's teaching us. I think it's showing us that the closer we get to God, the more our heart and his heart are going to be the same thing. The things that God loves, we're going to love. The things that God hates, we're going to hate. And the bottom line for us is that we can't, we're not to be judges. We're not to judge anyone. God is the only judge. We're not, gonna, we're not supposed to attack anyone. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. But we are, the closer we get to God, our, lights, our life is going to change. Count on it. It's going to be a dramatic change. It's going to change what we love and what we loathe. And then Psalm 139 ends with the most... I think one of the most stunning prayers in the entire Bible. You saw when Joe read this, he got there and he paused for a minute because this is a sacred prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. A key word in this prayer is a small one. You might miss it because it's so small, but it's the word any. If I had written this prayer, I would have been tempted to say, Search me, God, and show me the big sins first. Let's work on those. Then maybe let's back off and get the medium-sized one, and we'll save the tiny ones for later. David said, any. David said, show me any sin, because David understood that any sin of any size hurt his relationship with the Lord. 
There's a man on our street who always has his garage door open, and it's no wonder. His garage is immaculate. It looks like a showroom for his beautiful automobiles, and he's always out there polishing and buffing these cars. And I think if you asked him, he would say there's no such thing as a small imperfection. That's what David's praying. He's saying, Lord, show me if there's any imperfection. David wanted to be buffed out and shining for the Lord. This is how a humble servant of God prays. You don't sit there, you don't see David saying, Lord, fix my people. My people, oh boy, fix them. No, fix me. Lord, change my heart. Make sure I am right with you. Show me anything in my life. He was king. He had every right. He's on the throne. He's king. He could stand there and go, I'm in charge here, God. I'm doing pretty good. Work on my people. Work on my family. It was all about his relationship. And look at verse 23. Did David have a typo? Do you have a typo in your Bible here? He said, search me, O God, and know my heart. But in verse 1, he had already written, you have searched me and known me. Did David forget that God had already searched him and knew him? No, of course not. David is just showing his full cooperation with God. He's saying, God, I want what you want. I want you to keep searching me. Keep, keep knowing me. I want what you want. Would you like to know the secret to having a life that every day God will bless you? Every day. You know, would you like to hear the secret to that? If I tell you, do you promise to tell someone? Secret is, cooperate with God. Cooperate with God. Now, having a blessed life doesn't mean you're going to win the lottery and you're not going to have trouble. We're always going to have trouble, but with God's hand in our life, we have his power to see us through everything that we, we face. When I started cooperating with God, I basically said, I came to a place in my life where I said, okay, God, you know more than I do. Let's try things your way. I'd been doing things on my own for a while when I, did, when I got to that point, and I was doing okay, but I, it came with a lot of stress. I became a different person when I let God take control. You know why? Because it's impossible to outgive God. It is impossible to outlove God. The more you trust him, the more he proves how trustworthy he is. The more you give him, the more he just pours back in your life. And the closer you walk with him, the more, the greater the adventure becomes and grows. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Can you think of a better prayer? What if we started every day with that? Lord, I want every thought, every word, every deed to come from you today, not from anywhere else. Make me the person you created me to be. So the question we asked is, where is God? The answer is everywhere. We, can, we are always with our living God. He is as close to us as our soul is to our body, as our cells are to our body. So what do you think of this God of Psalm 139? Probably in a group of this size, you're probably thinking one of three things. You're thinking, yes, I know that God. I know him. Yep. I know the all-knowing, all-everywhere-present God. And I love him, and I, every day I'm growing closer to him. Or, second thing, you might be thinking, huh, yeah, I don't know that God like that. But I sure like to. Wish I could. The third thought might be, no, you know, I don't know God like that. And I don't think like somebody like me can. I'd like you to remember something. This has helped me. When David wrote Psalm 139, 1000 BC, God told him what to write. The all-knowing God knew you 
just as well as he knew David when he wrote this psalm. These words are for you. This psalm is for you. It's for me. It's as much for you and me as it was for the people that David wrote it for several thousand years ago. You can know the God of Psalm 139 because he knows you and he's calling you to him. All you need to do is take that little tiny step of faith. If you're in the camp where you're thinking, well, I don't know that God and I don't think I can, just change your answer from, I don't think I can to, I'd like to. I'd like to know him. Because if you start searching for God, he's easy to find. He's everywhere, remember? But nowhere is he more visible than right here in his word. If you're looking for God today, if you have questions about him, we would love to help you find the answers right here in the Word. We don't want to help you take money out of your wallet. We don't want to help you jump through hoops. We want to help you find the answers you're looking for right here so you can read for yourself who God is, where God is, and how you fit perfectly, fit perfectly into a relationship with Him. If you've never asked Jesus to be your Savior, just stay after the service. We can pray together, and you can leave here knowing that your adventure with God, your relationship with God has begun today. Or if you have any other questions, the the, the form you have in your bulletin. Just, just fill it out. Write your question and turn it in at the back table. We'll, 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 give you, we'll get back to you and give you answers for those. The question is, where is God? He's, the answer, he's everywhere present. But that leaves us with just one more question. Where are you? Where are you? Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you're the God of Psalm 139. You know us, you love us, you're with us everywhere we go. We praise you for that. Lord, please open the eyes of those who are looking for you. Show them yourself. Bring them to you. And Lord, I pray for the ones that are going through dark times, that you would shine your light upon them. Father, search us and know our hearts. Try us and know our anxious thoughts. Show us any hurtful way in us and lead us in the everlasting way. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.